What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Sean Jones NBA Show. Recording this on Friday afternoon. Uh, the playoffs have not started quite yet. We've got the last play-in games that will decide the eight seeds uh, tonight. The Thunder versus the T-Wolves and the Bulls versus the Heat. Uh, but for the purpose of this episode, we will be talking through the uh, regular season awards. So I'll go through each individual award. Uh, say who I have winning, who was a close runner-up and third-place finisher, uh, as well as finishing up with who I think should make the All-NBA teams for this season. So with that, let's get right into it. So starting off with Most Valuable Player. I know this has been a bit of a controversy at times over the past few seasons, but um, I think this is the year that Joel Embiid finally wins it. I know that the past two years, Jokic has taken home the award, um, probably deservingly so, though I do feel like last year uh, went a little bit against precedent with him being the sixth seed. Um, that's not happened very many times in NBA history. But uh, just looking at Embiid this season, he averaged 33 points, 10 rebounds, 4 assists. This was a career high in points for him. It was his second straight scoring title. Uh, this also was the highest uh, single scoring season for a center since Bob McAdoo back in 1975. Um, and aside from him, only Kareem and, and Wilt have scored at this volume over a full season for a center. Uh, he shot 55% from the field, 33% from three, 86% from the line. This was easily his career high in field goal percentage. Um, and he actually... Uh, was only one single free throw attempt uh, behind Giannis for leading the league in terms of attempts on, on the season. Uh, he also averaged 1.7 blocks and 1.1 steals, so it was certainly a force on the defensive end as well. Um, at stand, advanced stats-wise, he had a uh, 124 offensive rating, 109 defensive rating, so plus 15 rating, which is very strong. This was also the ninth-best defensive rating in the whole league. Um, proving his value on that end, as I said. Uh, he was also third in win shares at 12.3. He was second in PER at 31.4. was only 0.1 off the lead there. He also had some monster games this season. So um, He had three 50-point games, his highest being a 59-point outing. Uh, he had 13 40-point games. He had 44 30-point games. Um, I also think that he just had by far the most memorable moments um, and signature moments of the season among any player. Um, he had a 59, 11, 8, and 7 block insane stat line versus the Jazz back in November. Uh, then he also dropped 47, 18, 5, 3, and 2 on Jokic and Denver in an ABC primetime game. Uh, that was also a game that Jokic was very quiet down the stretch in the second half. Um, and didn't really do much at all, especially in the fourth quarter. Um, he had a, a game winner against the Blazers uh, late later in the year. He also had that insane highlight block on Ja. Um, that was a nationally televised TNT game in their win over the Grizzlies. Um, we've seen Ja try to put a ton of guys on posters, some successful, some not successful, but still impressive. He just didn't finish them. Uh, but this is the first time we've seen someone challenge him on that, and and it, <laughs> the first person who's actually succeeded in doing so. Uh, he also had a, a 52-13-6-2 uh, game against Boston just a, a few weeks ago. And <laughs> this was a game where he scored more than half the points for the Sixers. He had 52, and I believe they had uh, 103 or something like that, which is just absurd in a game that you win. Um, the eye test also, to me, says that he was by far the most dominant player in the league this year. Um, just his ability to take over games, just it, there wasn't really anybody else um, who could just dominate a game down the stretch uh, at will. Uh, the Sixers also had the third best record in the whole league, and they were 42-17 and 17 since early December, which actually was the best mark in the whole league. So um, just to summarize sort of his candidacy, um, it was a historic scoring season for a big man, um, the best in almost 50 years. Um, he had the longest list of signature iconic moments for this season. So when we look back and remember 
the 2022-2023 season. Um, a lot of those big moments will uh, be Joel Embiid games. Um, he was on one of the best teams all year long, obviously the main reason for that, and on the best team since early December. Um, the eye test says that uh, he was the most dominant player in the league. Um, he also had a massive uh, impact on the defensive end, and all of his counting and advanced stats pretty much all say that he had a phenomenal and absolutely deserving MVP season this year. So for my runner-up, I do have Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, he had a classic Giannis season, insane stats, 31, 12, and 6, shot 55% from the field, um, only 28% from uh, 3 and 64% from the line. And honestly, his efficiency and advanced stats were actually a bit down compared to what we've seen in recent years. It's his worst true shooting percentage since 2018, his lowest win shares since 2016, lowest box plus minus since 2018, lowest PER since 2018. Um, and he was still great in all of those areas compared to the majority of the league, but he was just a little less efficient on offense than we've seen him be in the past and what we're accustomed to. Um, but he was still elite defensively. Uh, he was basically top 10 in everything, defensive rating, defensive win shares, defensive box plus minus, and he still is probably the most versatile defender in the league. Also, the Bucks had the best record in the league and were great all year long, even without a fully a healthy Chris Middleton for most of the year. Um, and, of course, Giannis, to me, is still the best player in the league. Um, we definitely have some Giannis fatigue here, just like we have with LeBron. This season was certainly good enough to qualify uh, for the MVP, but I think he just gets knocked because we've seen how great he is year in and year out. And, unfortunately for him, we just kind of get used to it. But another great Giannis year. Obviously, the Bucks are looking like the favorite going into the playoffs. Uh, and he's obviously the main reason why. So that's why I have him second, um, as well as because of his major defensive impact that he's had. Uh, so just playing both sides of the ball uh, very consistently and at a super high level. So at third, I have Nikola Jokic. Uh, he had another great year, as he has had the past few. Averaged 24.5 points, almost 12 rebounds, and just under 10 assists. So not quite a triple-double, but very, very close. Uh, his efficiency was just ridiculous this year. 63% from the field, 38% from three, 82% from the free-throw line. He, he had a career-high in assists and field goal percentage this year. And we all know that Jokic has always been a analytic darling, if you will. Uh, this year, he was first in the league in win shares at 14.9. He was first in PR at 31.5. He was first in box plus minus at 13.0. First in true shooting percentage at above 70%, which actually is pretty ridiculous. And then he was seventh in offensive rating. Um, but he was only behind Jimmy Butler and then a bunch of guys who only shoot dunks and layups. So it's easier to have higher offensive ratings when you're only taking uh, close range shots. And look, I think that advanced stats are extremely valuable to dive deeper into a player's impact beyond just what you see from a counting stat perspective. But I do think that there are just some players that have a playing style that's more conducive to producing high advanced stats. Um, and we, for example, I mean, we know this is it's just easier for a rim running center to have good advanced stats than it is for a volume scoring guard. Um does that mean that a, a rim-running center is a better player than a guard? Um, no, not necessarily. Both are very important roles in the modern NBA, and I don't really think one is clearly more important or valuable than the other. They're both important pieces to have and help pretty much any team that has one. And for whatever reason, Jokic is sort of the poster boy for this uh, advanced stat anomaly. Something about the way he plays just ends up producing absurd advanced stats. And I'm not trying to take away anything from him. But, I mean, when I say absurd, I mean absurd. Because according to some of the most popular advanced stats, he would be one of the five to ten greatest players in NBA history. Um, <laughs> just looking at some of these, he's second in the history of the NBA all-time in PER. He's ninth all-time in true shooting percentage. He's fourth all-time in win shares per 48 minutes. He's first all-time in box plus minus, above everybody who's ever played. And he's third in offensive rating. So, <laughs> I mean, 
He's top five in pretty much every single category ever. And we just know that the eye test tells us that that just isn't true. He's like he's not quite at that level. Um, so with that being said, advanced stats are an important part of the equation when evaluating a guy, but they aren't the end-all be-all. And so unfortunately for him, I do take his advanced stats with a slight grain of salt. Um, and on top of that, he typically has good defensive advanced stats in some of the, most of the metrics I just named. However, this year he was kind of a mess on defense. Um, he had an entire stretch of games late in the year where there were clips going viral of teams just attacking him off the pick and roll late in games. And he often looked totally lost on that end. Um, and because the teams started taking advantage of this nuggets actually really struggled down the stretch. They finished the year seven and 10. Um, and they were an average defensive team for most of the year, middle of the pack, but Jokic himself was particularly not good. He allowed the second highest field goal percentage to opponents at the rim in the entire league at close to 69%, which was only behind Buddy Heald among qualifiers. (laughs) Um, He's second worst in the league in paint points allowed and paint field goal percentage. Um, He allows 1.16 points per chance when players drive the ball on him, which is fourth worst in the entire league. And even when he does defend a shot heavily, it still hasn't been good. He's allowed the second highest field goal percentage in the league on heavily contested paint shots. So the other MVP candidates just don't have this kind of defensive deficiency. Um, and in fact, it's it's a strength of theirs for both Giannis and Embiid. So to me, this was a, a very valid and important knock on, on his season. And lastly, I know people are out there arguing that we shouldn't take into account what happened the past two years when making a vote. But I'm sorry. I think it matters. Um, I I care a lot about precedent. And winning three straight MVPs is historically significant. It's only been done by Larry Bird, Wilt Chamberlain, and Bill Russell. And all of those guys are top five, if not top ten players in the league all time. Um, <laughs> and so we're really setting a bad precedent and getting in dangerous territory if he were to get his third trade. I mean, he didn't even make the NBA top 75 list. What just uh, was that two years ago? Um, and if we're going to say he deserves three straight, then LeBron probably should have deserved eight straight at one point, you know, um, that's just how it's worked historically. And I've heard for years how bad his supporting cast has been and, Year after year, he gets a pass when he loses in the playoffs. But I'm sorry, if you get your third straight MVP, then history says he's on the Bird-Wilt-Russell tier of players. So there's no excuse if he doesn't make the finals. It would be totally unacceptable given his stature. uh, He's 28 years old. If he had three MVPs and he's got one Western Conference Finals appearance and zero finals, that's three times as many MVPs as he even has conference finals appearances. So for all the people who think that Jokic should get his third straight, um, you better be able to handle the blowback when if he doesn't make the finals this year. He's the one seed. Everything should be set up for him. The West is wide open. So if he, do, if he doesn't have a good long playoff run this time around, then... Yeah, it's it, it could get bad for him, especially if he were to win the MVP. But um, fortunately, I do think Embiid is going to win the award, and I personally think he should win the award. So, again, I don't want to take away from Jokic. He had a phenomenal season. He's had a phenomenal stretch these past few years. The Nuggets had a really good year as a team, um, and yeah, he he had a just crazy efficient year. But um, again, just because of his defensive. Uh, deficiencies and the precedent of history. I don't think he should win the MVP this season. Cool. So now we're going to move to defensive player of the year. So starting off, I have Jaron Jackson Jr. as my winner this year. He led the NBA in blocks for the second straight year at three a game, which is ridiculous. Um, He also averaged a full steal per game. Uh, He led the NBA in defensive rating at 105, which is almost a full 10 below the league average, which is crazy. He was ninth in the NBA in defensive win shares, uh, but everybody above him played at least 400 more minutes, and this is a cumulative stat, defensive win shares. And so he actually would have been first if it was on a per-minute basis. He was eighth in defensive box plus minus. He was first in the NBA in defensive field goal percentage at the rim and within five feet. And really the narrative was there for him all year long. Um, He made 
the All-Star game pretty much mostly because of his defense. The Grizzlies were the second-best defense in the NBA and top five all year long. Um, and that's really with two subpar defensive guards in Ja and Desmond Bain and with Steven Adams missing half the season. So the um, defensive anchor behind him wasn't there. He doesn't really have a lot of wing or guard uh good defenders on his team. So it was really impressive what he was able to do uh, anchoring their defense. Um, Really the only knock on him is that he's prone to foul trouble, uh, which can limit his playing time at times. He's actually under 30 minutes a game because of this. But but overall, I think he had the best defensive season of anybody. He was up there in pretty much all of the stats. Eye test uh, checks out as well. And uh, his team was great defensively, and he was the main reason why. So second here I have Evan Mobley. Um, he was probably the most important and most versatile defensive player on the league's best defense in Cleveland. Um, similar to the Grizzlies, they pretty much lack any impact wing defenders. Uh, Mitchell and Garland, not exactly known for their defense, particularly Garland has been poor on that end. Um, and because of that, Mobley's had to guard the, the wings, uh, a ton and help out his guards who aren't strong on that end. But He was second in defensive rating after Jackson at uh, 108. He was first in defensive win shares. He was 10th in opponent field goal percentage within 10 feet. He averaged one and a half blocks, and it really came on late. He actually averaged uh, 2.2 blocks in the month of March. And he was a lot more durable than Jaron Jackson Jr. He played 79 games versus 63 for Triple J. Uh, He played over 34 minutes a game versus uh, only 28 for Jackson. Um, and he played over 2,700 total minutes to Jackson's only 1,787. So huge minutes discrepancy there, more than 50% off. Um, and so you could argue that he had more impact just based on volume. Um, but the reason I did have Mobley second, despite all that, is because he has Jared Allen sitting next to him on the court every night. Um, and he's also one of the best defenders and rim protectors in the entire league. And he's up there in all those key defensive stats as well. I mean, Allen was fifth in defensive win shares, sixth in defensive rating, 14th in opponent field goal percentage within five feet. So I think Mobley's able to get away with more things, um, take more risks because he's got Allen, uh, protecting the rim behind him. Um, and Jaron Jackson Jr. just didn't have that luxury yet. He still, um, statistically had a more, Um, impressive defensive season despite the lack of uh, durability or minutes and time on the floor so it was close for me I think Mobley had a great defensive year Um, but I know he's only in his second year so there's no doubt on my mind that he will win a defensive player of the year at some point in his career if not multiple Um, so I'm I'm not I'm not sweating it too much on on his side just because I know that he'll be back um and, and both of them were super deserving, obviously. So, And then third, I have Brooke Lopez. Um, and for similar reasons, that's why I have Lopez third to Mobley. Um, so he was seventh in defensive rating at 109, second in defensive field goal percentage at the rim, seventh in opponent field goal percentage within five feet, seventh in defensive win shares, third in the NBA blocks at two and a half. And he had a great year anchoring the Bucks' defense that was top four in defense all year long. But unfortunately, I, it does get held against him that he predominantly shares the court with arguably the league's best guard perimeter defender in Drew Holiday and arguably the league's most versatile defender in Giannis. So again, I don't want to take away from his great defensive year, but the other two guys were just more impressive to me because their increased responsibility on the team. Uh, Mobley really had to guard on the perimeter a lot more than Lopez did. Um, and Jackson really was the only anchor on his team. So for Brooke, uh, great year. Um, it, really, it, it's remarkable the uh, how good he's been on, on both ends of the ball, given where he was like five years ago <laughs> as just a kind of forgotten piece in the NBA. But great year. But again, I, I it's hard to give him all the credit um, for their d- good defensive season when he's got – multiple elite defenders playing around him on a nightly basis. Cool. So now I'm going to move to most improved player. Um, and my pick for that is Lori Markinen. It's not too long ago that Markinen was a, a cast off of sorts. He was traded on draft night, uh, the night he was drafted. 
saw both his minutes and his stats uh, pretty significantly decline for two straight seasons in Chicago. And then he lost his full-time starting spot. He became a free agent after that. And he actually didn't sign until late August, which was well after all the other big free agents did. His contract, which was four years for $67 million, was viewed by most people as a massive overpay. Uh, people were scratching their heads at why Cleveland gave him that. Um, and especially when they didn't have an obvious rotation spot for him, given that they had just drafted Mobley and uh, they still had Jared Allen on the roster as well. Um, and then he's traded again only after only one year in Cleveland. And keep in mind, I know he's traded for Donovan Mitchell, but he was not the centerpiece of this trade. Um, anyone who tries to tell you he was is just uh, revising history. <laughs> it was around the picks and Con Sexton as the, the sign-in trade piece. I think Markkanen was really only in there for salary matching purposes um, because he had a relatively large salary and they had to throw someone in there because of Mitchell's salary. But he gets to Utah and he increases his points year over year from under 15 points a game to almost 26 points a game, from under six rebounds to almost nine rebounds a game. He sets a career high in assists, increases field goal percentage from 44.5 to 50% despite taking almost six more shots from the field. His three-point percentage is up from under 36% to 39%, despite another increase in volume. He more than doubled his free throw attempts per game. Um, From an advanced stat perspective, he had a career-high true shooting percentage of 64%, which is extremely good. He had his um, best offensive rating at 125, his best net rating at plus 9. He tripled his offensive win shares to uh, 6.3%. He had three 40-point games, including a 49-point outing versus Houston in January. He had 16 30-point games, and he really flirted with 50, 40, 90 all year long, um, and that was while averaging 26 and 9. Um, I know offense is up across the league, but this was extremely um, similar statistically this season to a peak Dirk Nowitzki season. Um all all of this after being an undervalued cast off for the first five years of his career as well. So um, the Jazz also were supposed to be one of the worst teams in the league. I think their over-under was in the mid-20s. Um, and to be honest, they might have made the plan if they hadn't started shutting guys down and trading um, guys at the deadline. Um, and marketing was really the biggest reason why. So I think he is just the perfect uh, candidate for this award really embodies true internal improvement as well as um, being able to kind of overcome early career struggles. Um, I don't think anybody could have seen uh, this outburst from him coming this season, even the most optimistic marketing fans. So second for this award, I do have Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and SGA was just awesome this year. Um, The reason I have him second, I feel like his improvement was more on par with the natural progression of NBA stardom compared to Markkanen's slightly less traditional route, which is why I did end up giving it to Markkanen. But SGA was really good, but he was really good last year too. I mean, he averaged 25, 6, and 5 on 45% from the field last year. But this year he actually changed his game a bit. Um, He took half as many threes as the year before, which is interesting in a league that um, (laughs) three-pointers are up. Um, but that actually helped his efficiency there. He went from 30% to 34.5%. He took way more two-pointers and shots near the basket. He took over four more two-pointers from the year before. And that led to a career-high 11 free-throw attempts per game, and he shot 91% there. Um, he was third in the NBA in attempts and first in free-throws made across the whole league. Uh, he also upped his scoring overall to 31.4 points per game, so basically a, a six or seven point increase from one year to the next he also improved a good bit defensively um he had career highs in steals at 1.6 and blocks at at 1.0 and the eye test says that he just put in a little bit more effort on that end than he had in the past few years with the the thunder um he was also just off the charts um analytically way better than he had been he was fifth in the whole league in win shares at 11.4 7th in box plus minus at 7.3. 7th in PR at 27.2, which is really good. 8th among guards in offensive rating at 125. And he had a 113 defensive rating, which is uh, better than league average. Um, he was arguably a top 5 to 10 player this year all year long. 
and it led to a very subpar roster potentially making the playoffs this year. So great year for him. Um, I think in most years he probably wins this award easily, but I think Markinen was a particularly good candidate this year. Then up next we have Mikhail Bridges um, as my third place finisher here. Um, he did have his last game with the Nets where he actually uh, fouled <laughs> or started the game, fouled immediately and checked out just so he could get the game played. But So that hurt his late stats a little bit. But before that game, just with the Nets, he was averaging 27.2 points per game, 4.6 rebounds, 2.7 assists, shooting 48% from the field, 38% from three, 89%. Uh, from the line, so nearly 50, 40, 90 at 27 points per game. And this is the same guy that was on a Suns team that people had said they had no second star, they had no consistent second scorer. He was thought of as really just a 3 and D guy, but this year he's massively improved in a ton of areas, being ball handling, playmaking for others, isolation shot creation for himself, off the dribble shooting. Um, he's got a deadly mid-range shot now. And he was always an elite finisher in transition and cutter off the ball. but um, And his efficiency isn't at its peak from what we've seen. I mean, he had one year where he was 54% from the field, 43% from three. But that's not sustainable for really anybody other than maybe like a Kevin Durant <laughs> putting up those kind of numbers at the volume that he's been um, at. And his current efficiencies are still well above average for uh, this volume. So he's been really good. Um, and to be honest, we may look back on the Kevin Durant trade as a, as a great deal for Brooklyn um, after there were some mixed feelings about it. And one of the other reasons I have him third above some other deserving guys like uh, Jalen Brunson, for example, is because I really like that we saw his improvement throughout this season. Um, if you watched him the first two, three weeks of the year and then the last two, three weeks, it's a total night and day. And this transformation did start to happen before he got to the Nets, actually. He really finished his son's tenure strong um, while there were guys out like Booker and Paul missed time. And you were starting to see flashes of this. But then once Brooklyn really handed him the keys, he completely took off um, and had a, a great year uh, compared to his previous seasons. Next, we will move to sixth man of the year. My winner for this is Malcolm Brogdon. Um, on the air, he played 67 games and started zero of them. So it was a true sixth man this year. Um, but he was actually the third leading scorer. And this is for a top two team in the whole league. Um, he averaged 15, four and four. He was 48% from the field, 44% from three, which is one of the best three point shooters in the whole league this year. Um, and then 87% from the line, uh, true shooting percentage, just under, uh, 62%. He had great advanced stats, 122 offensive rating, 113. Defensive rating, plus nine rating overall. He's not quite what he was on defense, maybe more in his prime, but he was still well above average um, in terms of defense this year. Um, and he had by far his most efficient and best year advanced stats-wise since his last year in Milwaukee, which is also when he last was in a little bit of a complementary role versus a more featured role with the Pacers. Um, and Brogdon has proven that he can be a very good starting player on an above-average team like he was with Indiana. But his efficiency drops a little bit with volume, um, but not a ton. He's always been a, a pretty relatively efficient player. Um, but in a condensed role, he can be elite efficiency-wise, which he's been this year. Um, also, he was just so consistent all year long. And, of course, it's it's hard not to be consistent when you shoot 44% from three. Um, can't have many down months uh, if you're going to shoot that high. But he had four different months where he shot 47% or better from three. He had three months where he shot 53% higher or higher. Um, so this was just a great year overall for Brogdon, um, who I've always been a big fan of, and I think he's one of the more underrated players in the league and was one of my favorite offseason additions uh, back when we talked about that uh, before the season started. So up next, second as the runner-up, I have Bobby Portis. On the year, he averaged uh, 14 and 10, 50% uh, from the field, 37% uh, from three, 77% from the line. He had a plus seven net rating with 117 offensive, 110 defensive. It's a very good defensive rating. He was right around league average at 57.5 true shooting percentage. Um, and he was a top five minute getter for the best team in the NBA. And he really held down the second unit for them all year long. Um, and he played 70 games, which is on the higher side. And he's really found a, a home here in Milwaukee. He did start some games for them, 
Um, and But honestly, his efficiencies were about the same. I mean, he was 49.7% from the field as a starter, 49.5% as a reserve. His net rating as a starter was plus 5. Net rating as a reserve was plus 5. So obviously his volume was up a little bit when he started, but he was consistent whether he started, came off the bench. He would do whatever you needed out of him. Um, and it's crazy. He similar to Markin, and I mean not to the same extent. He's on a start, but like this guy was just this fringe roster guy, talented, but you you didn't really know where, if at all, if he'd find a home. And he really has, and it, it's been awesome to see for him. And uh, if it wasn't for Brogdon having a really really awesome year, I think Portis would have been a really deserving uh, sixth man this season. So next up, I have Emmanuel quickly finishing third. He took a big defensive leap this season, was really impressive on that end. Um, and he also took a big efficiency jump. Um, he was up to 45% from the field, but he was sub 40% for both of his first two seasons. Um, and his true shooting percentage was um, up around 58% this year after being below 56% um, the past two years, which is well below average. Um, and I know quickly is the... Uh, favorites uh, in Vegas betting wise and a lot of people are have been pushing the quickly agenda recently however I want to bring up his starter and re- uh, reserve splits because they're they're pretty dramatic as a starter he's averaging 23 a game five assists five rebounds 47 percent from the field 40 percent from three his uh True shooting percentage is above 60. His net rating is plus 12, 129 offensive rating, 117 defensive rating. But as a reserve, he's only 12 a game, uh, four rebounds, three assists, only 44% from the field, 35% from threes. True shooting is down to 56%, and his net rating is only one. So his advanced stats are way higher. His uh, traditional efficiency shooting percentages are way higher, and his volume is obviously way up. So he scored almost 40% of his total points on the season and only about 25% of his total games um, when he started. And the point of this award is to reward a player who performed exceptionally well off of the bench this year. And the fact of the matter is that quickly performed significantly worse <laughs> off the bench this year than he did as a starter. Um, so, and I'm not just talking volume-wise. Obviously, volume is going to go up, but his efficiencies were way worse off the bench. Um, and there's really no comparison to Quickly's bench stats when you look at them next to Brogdon or Portis. I mean, both Brogdon and Portis have higher volume, higher efficiency, better advanced stats when they come off the bench. And so the role of a sixth man is to perform coming off the bench, not to start a quarter of the games and be good in those games and then not mid when you come off the bench. So um, I think quickly had a great year. And this is not an insult. It's it's really impressive that he was able to come in as a starter and perform. Like this is this award is not for star players, obviously, because star players don't come off the bench. So like it's not a knock to say you shouldn't win this award. It's just saying that how he did it should it doesn't really line up with the point of the award so with that said still good season he was still good off the bench don't get me wrong but he was nothing special um in terms of his his play when he came off the bench versus he was phenomenal when he started this year so just because of that i think brogdon and portis deserve this a little bit more than him just because they did it consistently coming off the bench and at the same rate as they did when they started obviously brogdon didn't start at all um but if he did better than he did off the bench, he would have been ridiculous. He would have been one of the most efficient players in the whole league. So so next up, we've got Rookie of the Year. And this one should be pretty easy for most people. Um, I've got Paolo Bancaro finishing first. And he was really the best rookie in the, in the whole league from the first game of the season to the last game of the season. Um, on the year, he played 72 games. He averaged 20 a game, 7 rebounds, 4 assists. Um, shot 43% from the field, 30% from three, 74% from the line. Um, and he averaged at least 17 points per game in every single month this season. Um, he had six 30-point games. He scored 20 or more in 40 of his 72 games. Uh, he was really impressive uh, this year. And scoring 20 points 40 times as a rookie is not easy. Um, that's the same amount that LeBron actually had as a rookie. And only seven guys drafted this century have had more. 
and that's Blake Griffin, Mello, Donovan Mitchell, Katie, Luca, Dame, and Tyreek Evans. And that entire list outside of Evans is pretty much made up of Hall of Famers. Uh, outside of maybe Mitchell, he could get there, but he's not there yet. But the rest of the guys are easy Hall of Fame choices at this point. So, um, And one of his most impressive stats was that he was actually ninth in the entire NBA in free throws taken this season at 534. And that is just insane for a rookie. Only Blake Griffin has taken more among rookies this century. Um, and Blake Tate played 10 more games than he did. So just imagine how many he'll be taking when he's actually in his prime, if he's already top 10 at the age of 20. Um, he actually held up pretty well defensively this year as well. Um, that was a slight knock coming out of the draft for him, but he led the team in minutes per game, and they were the six, 16th rated defensive team, so middle of the pack. It's so clearly not a liability there. Um, I also just want to point out that his advanced stats were not great. But I personally have a rule where I don't even pay I don't pay attention to advanced stats as a rookie. They just don't count because most of them end up sucking. Um, and a perfect example is Darius Garland, who's obviously has made an all-star team, is a very good player now. He had maybe the worst advanced stats I've ever seen in my entire life as a rookie. He had a minus 24 net rating, a PER of 8.5. His true shooting percentage was below 50%. He had negative win shares, negative 5.5 box plus minus. I mean, those are <laughs> literally the worst I've ever seen, I think. I um, mean, he obviously turned out just fine. So <laughs> I will say that you'd like to see your advanced stats start to take a leap at least by year three or so because um, you see guys who have bad rookie years, like a Kevin Knox, for example, and you get to year three and four and you're like, all right, they're still pretty bad. <laughs> so it, there's a certain point where they're just not very good. Um, but I anticipate Paolo being able to up a lot of those efficiencies. I mean, he took on a massive role this year as a rookie, uh, more than most players have to in terms of just the scoring load. So uh, I'm sure he'll polish his game. They'll get more talent around him. Um, he'll be able to get even more calls. And so he, I'm, I'm not worried at all. I think he's going to be a, a perennial all-star moving forward in this league for sure. Next, uh, I will say Jalen Williams. Um, he really came out strong in the second half post-All-Star break. He was 19 a game uh, with five rebounds, four assists. Uh, he shot 55% uh, from the field, 43% from three, second half, and 88 so <laughs> from the line. So almost 50-40-90 at nearly 20 points a game. Really impressive. impressive. Uh, he finished the year at 14 a game, five rebounds, three assists. 52% from the field, which is still great, and 35% from three. So he obviously didn't shoot the three ball super well early. He also had really good analytics uh, for a rookie. Uh, he was uh, net positive in most aspects, which you don't see super often, as I just mentioned when I was talking about Paolo. But, um, yeah, it looks like he really fits in, and he, he's just been awesome for the Thunder this year. I mean, I, I think at, at worst he's going to be a very solid starting player. I don't know if he'll turn into an all-star, but he certainly has that potential based on how good he looked this year. Um, and it wasn't like he had some big expectations coming in. I mean, he was a uh, late lottery pick, but some people thought that that was even a little high for him. He was a late riser uh, in the draft, so. And then lastly, we've got Walker Kessler um, finishing third for me. Uh, he wasn't getting much playing time early, but he ended up finishing with nine points and eight rebounds as an average, as well as two and a half blocks. He was 72% from the field as well. Um, and as a starter, he was 12 and 10 with 2.7 blocks, which is just crazy on the defensive end. He also had insane advanced stats for a rookie. Um, and honestly, they were just really good overall. I mean, he had 140 offensive rating. 111 defensive rating plus that's a plus 29 um he had 7.1 win shares 21.5 pr of course as a big man who only shoots dunks and layups pretty much it's a lot easier to have good advanced stats but the defensive piece of this is what's most impressive it's really hard to defend the paint um in the nba these days and it's especially hard to do it as as a young seven footer rookie um and he did it as well as pretty much anybody in the whole league not even just among rookies so Really impressive year from him, um, and I think he is deserving of a top three finish. I'll obviously make all-rookie team as well this year. Up next, we've got Coach of the Year. So I think this is probably the, one of, if not the most obvious pick uh, among all these, but it's got to be Mike Brown. Uh, this is a no-brainer. He probably will win it unanimously, but 
The Kings had not made the playoffs in 16 years. That was the longest in all professional sports. The last time they were in the playoffs, Mike Bibby was their leading scorer, and he's been out of the league for nine years now. <laughs> um, they hadn't even won eight, uh, had a season of 40 wins once in that span. Um, <laughs> so not only were they not making the playoffs, they weren't even like mediocre. They've been just bad this whole time. They've had 11 coaches in this span. None of them coached for more than three years at a time, and four of them were fired midseason. Uh, Brown has led them to 48 wins, which is 18 more than they had last year. They are a top three seed in the Western Conference. They obviously ended the playoff drought. Um, they had the number one offense in the NBA. He also got the most out of uh, De'Aaron Fox, Sabonis, and Kevin Herter, who all had by far their best seasons. And um, really just the vibes have been great with this team all year long. Everyone loves the light, the beam. They've been a great story. So no-brainer for Mike Brown to win this award, in my opinion. Um, then up next, we've got Mike Dagnall as my second pick, finishing as runner-up. Uh, this is the Thunder head coach. They won 16 more games than they did last year, kind of out of nowhere, and it'll be really impressive, especially if they end up winning tonight and making the playoffs. And that increase in wins is really with no big offseason additions. I mean, their biggest addition was probably Jalen Williams, who was a rookie drafted outside of the top 10, and then Chet, who hasn't even played a game yet, so... Um, they've really relied mostly on internal growth, so that's big credit to him on driving that. Um, and they've been a well-rounded team. I mean, they're 13th in offensive rating, 14th in defensive rating, and they just don't really have a great roster, but he's been able to get a lot out of this team, especially with their um, lack of size and competent big men on the roster. So great job to him overall this year. Then we've got J.B. Bickerstaff finishing third. So the Cavs won seven more games than they did last year. They've been the best defense in the NBA all year long. They ended a four-year playoff drought. And this is the first time they're going to make the playoffs without LeBron since 1998, uh, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> I know Bickerstaff's bounced around the league a little bit, so it's nice to see that he's found a home here in Cleveland. Um I'm very interested to see how they perform in the playoffs. Um, I am a little higher on them than most people. I think they've been a little slept on this year. So um, we'll see if they can make a run with him. Up next, we've got the inaugural clutch player of the year. Um, and I think this is as <laughs> this is a no-brainer too. I mean, it's got to be De'Aaron Fox. He was first in clutch points per game at 5.0, first in total clutch points at 194 which is 35 more than the next player. Um, he was first in clutch field goals made at 72. The next highest was 49, and he shot 53% in the clutch. He was first in the league in win probability added. In clutch time, he was second in total clutch steals. He was seventh in clutch free throw attempts, and he shot 86% there. He also led the league in game-winning shots with less than 10 seconds to go at three. He had an uh, iconic buzzer beater versus the Magic earlier in the year. I mean, this guy's just been first in every single category here. So I think it's obviously a no-brainer for him to win this. Um, very deserving. We've got some good uh, competition for him, though. I mean, I have Embiid finishing second. He was first in clutch plus-minus at plus 99 in 131 minutes. Um, he was second in clutch free throws made and shot 87% there. He had the second-highest win probability added in clutch time. He had a game-winning shot versus the Blazers recently. He also went 23-13 and 13 in clutch time, so a very good record in those games. And then third, I've got Jimmy Butler, who was third in clutch points, third in clutch field goals made, third uh, shot 51% there, was second in clutch free throws made, and third in clutch win probability added. So all three of these guys were phenomenal in uh, crunch time down the stretch this year, but Fox obviously stood above the rest in terms of um, – just winning this award. He was, <laughs> he's been great all year. Cool. So now I'm going to get into my all NBA picks. So my general opinion on the all NBA teams is that there's a few main factors that go into picking them. One is obviously health and games played. You have to play a certain amount of time uh, to qualify. Uh, Cause if you have a great season, it's only 30 games. It's just, you didn't have enough time on the court to make it as much of an impact as, as some of the other guys that did. Uh, your team has to have some level of success. You can't be a bottom three team in the league and expect to make All-NBA. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, even if people don't want to admit it, is individual success. Um, 
how efficient were you this year? Did you have good counting stats? Did the advanced stats back it up? So there's a lot of things that go into that as well. Um, but for the games played part of it, um, if you're above a certain number, then I think that's fine. Um, but of course, you can get extra points if you play like 75, 80 games. But um, if you're at 64 versus 73, like it's, it's not a huge difference to me. It's, if it's nine game difference, like as long as you both played to a certain level, then that's not, it could be maybe a tiebreaker, but ultimately I think I'm going to, I'm going to rely more on the individual and team success that you had. Um, and on that front, um, you can make it with only one of those and not the other, but only to an extent, like if your team was bad, but you had just a truly remarkable season, then I think you still need to be considered. Or if your stats were good, but not great, but your team was elite, then you should still be considered as well. Um, especially if you're the only one from that elite team, um, top teams typically should have some representation, um, with at least one and oftentimes two players that do end up making this list in my opinion. So, so I've identified a list of 27 players that I think should in some level, um, or some capacity be under consideration for this year. For the guards, I've got Anthony Edwards, Dame Lillard, Darren Fox, Devin Booker, Donovan Mitchell, John Morant. Jalen Brunson, James Harden, Drew Holiday, Luka Doncic, uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander, Steph Curry, and Tyrese Halliburton. For the forwards, got uh, Giannis, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Jimmy Butler, Julius Randle, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant, Laurie Markinen, and LeBron. And then for the centers, we've got Anthony Davis, Bam Adebayo, uh, Demonis Sabonis, Joel Embiid, and Nikola Jokic. I think overall this year, it was a very strong class of guards. Um, but with that said, they could go in a lot of different uh, orders. Like, I don't think that there's like a clear one, two, clear two, th- or three, four, et cetera. Um, a lot of deserving guys will miss. Um, and I think we could have some variability on the guard perspective this year. Um, I do think this is also a weaker class for the forwards. Because um, like guys like Kawhi and KD, like, they obviously played well enough to make it, but they just didn't play enough. No one's going to put them on, even though like there's going to be a lesser player who makes it up over them because of that. I think there's a lot of borderline guys that could go either way based on your preference for the forwards as well. Um, and then for the centers, I think there's a pretty clear top three, in my opinion. Um, still some notable snubs that like had really good years, but I think if you have anything outside the, t- the top three, um, then it's it's just not the right pick. So cool. So let's get right into it. So starting with my first team all NBA uh, at the guard spot, I have Shea Gilgis Alexander. I think he checks pretty much all the boxes here. His counting stats were great. His advanced stats were insanely good. His efficiency was good. He played sixty eight games. Really, the only knock is that his team wasn't spectacular, but um, the supporting cast was not good. And especially if they make the playoffs, then that takes that part completely out of the equation, in my opinion. Um, next, uh, the second guard, I've got Donovan Mitchell. Um, he's been one of, if not the best guard all year long. He's got career highs in points per game, career high in efficiency across the board with field goal percentage, three-point percentage, free throw percentage, true shooting percentage. And he's got his best uh, advanced stats he's had in his career as well. And then the Cavs were a 51-win team, top five in defense all year long, and he led the charge offensively for them. And then the rest of these picks, are, I'm going to go through quick. They're no-brainers. Jason Tatum and Giannis at the forward spot. That's just, if you don't have them there, then you <laughs> probably shouldn't be um, giving your opinions on uh, <laughs> the all-NBA teams. And then the center, uh, Joel Embiid. Again, obviously, I have the only debate would be him versus Jokic, but I picked him for MVP, so obviously I got him first team as well. So moving to the second team, uh, first guard, I've got De'Aaron Fox. He played 73 games, which was most among uh, guard candidates outside of Anthony Edwards. He was the most clutch player this season. He led his team to a top three seed. He was by far the most efficient he's been in it, uh, his career at any point, career high in field goal percentage and true shooting percentage. And he just took a huge leap in terms of his advanced stats. He, he honestly was largely a negative player analytically before this, but he had a very strong um, analytic year this year. So second guard, I've got Luca. I know his team was bad and the team had a disaster season, but his individual stats were just too great to put any lower than second team um, 
He had a career high in points per game and overall efficiency, field goal percentage, and true shooting. And he was the best uh, analytically that he's ever been as well. Career highs and true shooting, like I said, PER, win shares, um, box plus minus, offensive rating, net rating. So he was great. Then at the forward spot, I've got Jimmy Butler. Um, the Heat have been in the thick of the playoffs all year long. Um, Butler has been their go-to guy offensively while maintaining elite defense. He averaged his pretty typical 23-6-5, almost two steals a game. He also shot the ball better from three than he had in recent years at 35% after being like in the mid to low 20s the past few. And he actually had a completely ridiculous year efficiency and advanced stats-wise. I mean, his true shooting percentage was almost 65%. His offensive rating was 135. Um, and <laughs> he had a plus 23 net rating, which is just ridiculous <laughs> um yeah that's crazy and then he had a 27.6 per 12.3 win share so he was up there with like top three in the in the whole league in terms of all those stats but and then the next forward i've got lebron i know only he only played 55 games but to me that was enough based on the, his season i mean he averaged 29 8 and 7 on 50 percent from the field at age 38 which is ridiculous <laughs> when put into context um, he obviously broke the all-time scoring record this this year, so um, had a, probably the most memorable moment of the whole season. His advanced stats weren't quite as great as we've seen them in the past, uh, but still pretty good overall. Um, the Lakers obviously ended up finishing this year pretty strong, getting the seventh seed, so um, I feel pretty good about having LeBron here. And then lastly, Jokic as the second team, obviously um, could have had him first team if you prefer him over Embiid, but... The, in whatever order you have them, those two should be the first team and second team centers um, for the All-NBA teams. And then moving to third team, uh, the first guard I've got is Steph. I know he only played 56 games, um, similar number to LeBron, but he was awesome when he played 29-6-6 six, six on 49-43 and 92 shooting splits. He upped his efficiency back up after a bit of a down year last year, um, but he had a just, I mean, an all-time, like literally all-time great true shooting percentage for a guard at 65.6%. Um, and the Warriors were in the mix of the playoffs all year long and ended up avoiding the play-in, so he really checks all the boxes, and the only reason I have him third team instead of probably first team is because the game's played things, so he did get a, a bit of a knock there. Then the next guard I have is... This is probably be an unpopular opinion, um, and I doubt he ends up making it, but I have Damian Lillard. Um, I know his team sucked. They were fifth worst record in the whole league, I think. Um, and he only played 58 games, so that's two boxes he's not checking. But his individual season was so spectacular that I I felt like I had to reward it. Um, also, not to mention that he only missed time because the team sat him. And I, don't, I don't think it was his choice necessarily or that he was – Injured or anything like that, but he averaged 32, 7, and 5 on 46% from the field, 37% from three, 91% from the line. But his three-point and free-throw volumes were so high that it was actually a historically great season uh, from a volume scoring and shooting uh, season for a guard all-time. He was actually fifth best true shooting percentage in NBA history for a guard that took at least 15 shots a game. And... <laughs> Only Steph has had better. All four of the ones above him are Steph. So Steph is just an all-time anomaly from a shooting perspective. So he had the best volume shooting season for a guard in NBA history for anyone but Steph. Um, that plus, the Blazers were actually pretty decent for most of the year before guys got hurt and shut down. Um, plus, he had a 71-point game. So it just felt like a great Dame season to me, and I wanted to be able to recognize that. Uh, first forward spot, I've got Laurie Markkinen. Um, I loved Laurie's year. I already talked about it a bit um, on the most improved player portion of this, but uh, he had a classic Dirk year, um, and I think he deserves all his flowers for that. Then the second forward spot, I've got Jalen Brown, and this was probably the toughest decision for me. Like on one hand, Brown averaged 27-7 and on 49%, which is great, and he had great defense this year. He was on a, a top-two team all season long. But on the other hand, the advanced stats tell a pretty different story on his impact. Among all of the 27 players that I called out that I considered for this, he was second lowest um, in win shares 
above only Anthony Edwards. He was second to last in box plus minus above only Anthony Edwards, second to last in PER, sub 20, and only Anthony Edwards was worse. Obviously not a good uh, <laughs> fans year for Anthony Edwards. But he was fourth lowest in true shooting percentage, right around the league average. He, only Julius Randle, Edwards, and John Morant were worse. And then he had the second worst net rating, and it was actually a negative net rating. Um, and again, only Anthony Edwards was worse. <laughs> so he, he, he's bad this year, advanced stats. But Brown, just like the advanced stats do not like him at all. He had a pretty bad year, like a negative player overall. And a lot of it was actually vaulted up by his good defensive performance. His offensive analytics are what's particularly bad. And I think it's probably just because he, he doesn't um, – It's like we all know he can be sloppy with the ball. He turns the ball over a little too much. He doesn't really create for others at all, a little black hole at times. So that's probably why. But regardless, I decided to give it to him anyways because I think the eye test says that he had a really great season. His defensive impact was obviously real. He still had a very good volume scoring year, and his team was awesome all year long, and he was a big part of that, so I did have him there. And then the last spot, the final center on the third team, was Demonis Sabonis. This was a total no-brainer for me as well. He was so awesome all year long. I think he was probably the Kings' best player this season. Um, he's like a Jokic light of sorts. He averaged 19, 12, and 7 assists on 62%. He actually shot pretty well from three this year, too, on, at 37%, but it was low volume, obviously. And he was elite analytically. I mean, he had a 67 true shooting percentage, a plus 18 net rating, um, 12.6 win shares. He also played 79 games for a team that was one of the best and most consistent in the league all year long. So I think Sabonis, total no-brainer here as well. So just going through some of the guys that didn't make the cut, um, I mean, there was a bunch of reasons. Some of them just didn't play enough, like Durant, Booker, Kawhi. I think if any of those guys had like 10, 5 to 10-ish more games, then they, they might have been um, on the teams. But unfortunately, you got to cut guys for certain reasons, and they just didn't play enough. Some guys were a victim of just a stacked position i mean the guards uh pool this year was ridiculous like james harden jalen brunson drew holiday all really good years but they just weren't on the level of the guys that i had above them in my eyes and then same with bam and ad especially ad had a phenomenal year but i just think that sabonis Jokic, and and b just clearly were better so it's just it's just a numbers game at that point unfortunately I mentioned this earlier, but the advanced stats just hate Anthony Edwards, so I, I couldn't justify having him on there just given how poor his analytics are. Um, and then Tyrese Halliburton, his team just wasn't very good, and they shut him down late, so he kind of tailed off um, late in the year. And then John Morant, I probably would have had him like second team or something earlier in the year because um, the Grizzlies were the number two seed in the West, which is significant, and they don't have a player on my All-NBA team. But, well, f- first of all, Ja actually had a pretty bad efficiency year. He was, like, below league average to shooting percentage. His field goal percentage was down from last year. Three-point percentage was down from last year. All of his advanced stats down. Um, but then most importantly, the gun thing for me, I'm like, sorry, if you're going to have big off-the-court issues and it hurts the team, which it did, they played – quite poorly without him um then i I, yeah i just i gotta hold it against you um i understand the argument of not doing it but it's the same reason guys like Kyrie haven't been making all nba because the off the court stuff is just too much so i couldn't put him on for that and then probably the toughest omission here was julius randall i was really deciding between him and jalen brown um but i just feel like brunson kind of had more to do with their success than him so it felt wrong having him on, but Brunson off. And then also, it wasn't the most efficient season for Randall. He's never been the most efficient guy. I also just don't really love his play late in games uh, throughout the year or his career. But um, he obviously had a really good year. I'm not trying to take away from that. He was um, deserving of consideration. I think a lot of people will probably have him on, um, if not even second team. But he was a tough omission for me. Um but I just think that there was a lot of good guys to choose from this year. Um, and so unfortunately for me, he just did not make the cut. That's going to do it for this episode of the Sean Jones NBA show. Thank you so much for listening. We've got the playoffs starting 
on Saturday with the last playing games tonight. So I'll have my playoff previews and predictions out on my next episode probably this weekend. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think we're going to have some awesome playoff series uh, this year, not only in the first round, but especially in the second round and beyond. Um, and it's a wide open season, especially in the Western Conference. So uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. But yeah, listen soon. I'll have a new episode out for that um, in the coming days. Uh, and thanks again for listening. And I will chat with you soon. Thank you.